Let's bow again as we come before the Lord to to get into his word. Father, again, we are thankful for your forgiveness that you have brought through your son, Jesus. And uh, I do pray that you will help us to understand your word now today, that we would, by your spirit, apply it to our lives and uh, then do what you say by your power and strength. Lord, help us to understand exactly what you intended in this passage we'll see today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I thought I had come to faith. I went to church, but it was sporadic. I only came when I wanted to. I wasn't uh, faithful. I didn't come and desire to be here all the time, like the Lord changed my heart. And within that, uh, I really didn't uh, obey the Lord at all. There was really almost nothing that I thought about from his word that I wanted to obey. But when the Lord got a hold of my heart, when he convicted me of my sin... And I repented and trusted in him. I realized that my Christianity before was not Christianity at all. It was falsehood because I had still been in my sin. But when I was forgiven of my sin, he changed my heart. And I desired to come be at church. You couldn't keep me away from Bible says. You couldn't keep me away from church. And that's still the same way because that's where we grow in our knowledge of Christ. There was a change in my life. And within that, I desired to obey the Lord. But I soon found out that at times I would obey the, want to obey the Lord with the right intentions, want to do exactly what he said, but I would fail in those things. And there are times I think you can each acknowledge and understand as believers that we have the desire to do the right thing, and God has even called us to do it, and yet we fail in those things, and something goes wrong. And so with that in mind, I think we're going to see today as we finished our study of Philippians and we we transition to the next book that we will teach, we're going to see how we can keep from failing in what God calls us, and I'm speaking of believers, to do. And we're going to see that Jesus gives gracious instructions to his faltering disciples and, as we will see, to us. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 21 today. Now, as I've shared before, this message is for believers, not for make-believers. This message is for those who have trusted in Christ, who have repudiated either their religiousness from before coming to Christ or their wickedness without Christ. It's for true believers Now, in the book of Matthew, just a little context for us, Matthew is about King Jesus. It is about the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God who took on human flesh, who came to his own people, the Jews, who were sitting in darkness, and that he manifest his truth concerning their sinfulness and salvation in him through repentance and faith. And up to this point, now it's been two and a half years since Jesus began ministering. And within that time, the Jewish people have hardened their hearts and closed their eyes to the truth concerning Jesus. They are unrepentant, and yet they are still seeking to gain things from Christ. They are an evil and adulterous generation, as Jesus would say. And Matthew has also revealed that the religious leaders have have turned and they desire to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at that point, Jesus withdrew from the multitude, speaking in parables so that hearing they wouldn't hear, seeing they wouldn't see. And then in chapter 16, we had another turning point 
where the Lord, after revealing the wonderful truths concerning the nature of his church, turned his attention to his disciples and to the imminent crucifixion and resu- his imminent crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. Specifically, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers and die and be raised on the third day. And it's in chapter 16 we see Peter going from blessed as he makes a declaration concerning the person of Jesus Christ to a satanic in the blink of an eye. As he relied on his own understanding and desire and rejected the truth of the word of God that Jesus had just spoken declaring his own desire, which was contrary to Christ. And Jesus reproved him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. But yet within that, Jesus revealed what he expected of those who followed him. Self-denial and the recognition of one's life as they knew it before Christ, as over, that pressing forward, not looking back, my life is over before Christ, and now I have come to Christ. And I have new life in him, new life. And then allowing Christ Jesus to live through them instead. And Jesus warned that those who were unwilling to give up their sinful lives, to hold on to them and and go to their judgment, if they're unwilling to give them up in repentance and faith, unwilling to accept the free gift of salvation, unwilling to accept eternal life through Christ, that they would be judged when the Son of Man came in his glory. And it's at this point that Jesus shares in the end of chapter 16 that some that were with him would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then we saw in chapter 17 that Jesus revealed himself on that Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John. And they got a preview of what he would look like when he comes back in his glory. And we had the affirmation of Moses and Elijah, those who represent the law and the prophets. The affirmation of the God the Father himself saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so then we have our passage. We have the disciples here, the three coming down from that mountaintop experience with Jesus, trying to grasp the reality of what Jesus has said concerning his death. And that leads us to our passage today where we're going to see how we can keep from failing in what God calls us to do. Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So today we're going to see the Lord graciously help us and how we can keep from failing in what he calls us to do. And the first thing I think we're going to see is that we need to understand when we do fail, 
that it gives the world an opportunity to blaspheme God. There are serious consequences to failing in what God has called us to do. There are serious consequences when we fail in what God has called us to do at our work. There are serious consequences when we fail in what God has called us to do with our children. There are serious consequences when we do not follow through and obey what he's done, but sometimes it doesn't work out. We're wondering why. Today we're going to see that. And notice as we go to our passage. Now we're also going to be in Mark chapter 9, so you're going to want to keep your finger there because we're going to go back and forth between Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9. Okay? Now, our passage begins in verse 14. And when they came to the multitude. Remember the context. Jesus has taken his inner circle of Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. They have seen his glory. He has told them not to reveal it to anyone until he's risen from the dead. They're coming down from this mountaintop experience. And his other disciples have been left behind. And apparently they are ministering. And while they were, Jesus and Peter, James, and John were on the mountain, something happened with these other disciples when Jesus was gone. Let's take a look at uh, Mark chapter 9. We have a little bit more information here. Mark chapter 9, and let's start in verse 14. And when they had come back, the disciples, that's speaking of, uh, that's speaking of uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they came back. To the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. That's the other disciples that are remaining. And some of the scribes were arguing with them. You got uh, the scribes arguing with the remaining disciples who didn't go on the mountain with the Lord. And immediately when the crowd saw him, that's Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Now, his question was not to the crowd, but to the disciples who were discussing and having an argument with the scribes. So that's the scene being set, illumined in the book of Mark. And so let's go back now to Matthew, and we'll, we'll be flipping back and forth. And let's look at verse 14 in chapter uh, 17 of Matthew. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him, here you go, to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And now, back to Mark, where your fingers were. And we're going to read this again. We're going to see the, see the scene from a different perspective. Now, the intent of Matthew is not to focus on the demonic possession and the curing of that. Because the intent of Matthew is to, do, is, is to address faith. But in Mark, we have the showing of the reality of who Christ is in this. So there's a different intent. So we see it from a different angle. Um, verse 14 again, Mark chapter 9. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running to, up to greet him. And he asked them, this is the disciples Jesus is asking, the remaining ones there, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my, to you, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. This is an awful situation. 
Evidently, this is the cause of the argument between the scribes and the disciples. Evidently, we have a desperate dad who petitioned the disciples to, to heal his demonically possessed son. They couldn't do it. And most likely the scribes were trying to blaspheme Christ because of the disciples' inability to do what Jesus had actually said previously they could do. Look back in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. You see, Jesus had actually given them the authority to do this. Jesus had given them the authority to do this specific thing. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And they did cast out demons successfully, by the way. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And this is the 70, but they were given authority also. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, 10, 17, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So we have the disciples who had been given the authority to cast out demons. We have the fact that Jesus has allowed them to be subject to him. They have been doing that. It has been working. And yet, when Jesus, Peter, James, and John go to the mountain, the disciples are trying to cast out a demon from this, this boy, and it's not working. And the, and the scribes are arguing. The scribes are arguing. So we have a cruel situation with this boy back in Matthew 17. And when they came to the multitude, verse 14, a man came up to him falling on his knees before him saying, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. This man falls on his knees petitioning the Lord. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that he calls him his only son, his only son. And so the dad says, Lord, have mercy, for he is a lunatic, very ill. He often falls into the fire and into the water. Have mercy on my son. He goes to the Lord, the term Lord, Kyrios. It speaks of someone in authority. But it also is used to speak of the great I am, the, the, the self-existent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this term lunatic spoke of one who might have had epilepsy or a mental disorder. It comes from the Greek word, which means moonstruck. In their pagan views, they had a view that the moon affected their sanity. And so if he was a lunatic, it was probably the moon affecting their mind or whatever it might be. So he says he's a lunatic. He's very ill. Now, our society doesn't say that anymore. We've got all kinds of excuses for things, right? He says he's very ill, for often he falls in the fire and into the water. And as we'll see in a moment, Matthew doesn't give the details because that's not the focus, as Mark does. Look back in uh, Mark chapter 9. Very disturbing passage. 
And one of the crowd answered him, verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute and which seizes him and dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Those are some things we see these days. Grinding the teeth, stiffening out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. He's speaking here of demon possession. Now demons are fallen angels. They are spirit beings. Ones who, who fell when Satan fell. For the time's sake, I'm not going to get into it like I have in earlier passages in the book of Matthew. You can look at those. But in many passages in Matthew and other scriptures, we see that demons can and do inhabit and enter the unsaved. And they hold them, in a sense, under some wicked control. Now, we believers cannot be possessed by demons. I believe it's because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We can be influenced by Satan... No doubt about that from the outside, but we cannot be possessed. But non-believers can. And we see also in Matthew's chapters 8, 9, 12, and 15 that those who are demon-possessed can actually be, be possessed by more than one demon. We see demon-possessed in those chapters, and then in chapter 8, uh, one that was possessed by a legion, multiple demons. And in Scripture we see that those who are demon-possessed are not in their right minds. They can also be violent, unpredictable, exhibit super strength. They have physical ailments associated with it. Deafness, dumbness, blindness at times. That's not to say everyone who's deaf, dumb, and blind is demon-possessed. Of course not. But the reality is there is demon possession. And in Matthew chapter 15 and in our passage, we also see that children can be demon-possessed, those who don't know Christ. You remember the Gentile woman crying out, chapter 15, 25, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, our society won't admit that. We've got the psychological system that has a, a view of everything apart from the reality of Scripture. And we know that those things are earthly, natural, and demonic, man's wisdom and understanding. But here we have what God says about it. And that's what we as believers believe. So then, there is the possibility of demon possession for those who have rejected Christ, including children. It's a very serious thing. But Christ, as we will see, can and will deliver those who believe from the domain of darkness. Christ can and will do so. If you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you cannot be possessed. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But if you reject Christ and you continue on your own way, you are in the domain of darkness, but there's also the reality that if you fiddle and deal, dabble with things, you might end up putting yourself in a place where you could be cruelly demon-possessed. You might be in a place where you never thought you would be. So then, let's take a look back at Mark chapter 19. Excuse me, 19. Mark chapter 9. Verse 17. Verse 17. And the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought, I brought my, you to my son possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. He understood that. Which often seizes him and dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Now, folks, we need to be aware that God says this is what's going on. The world will have a different definition for it because they don't know Christ. 
They don't know Christ, but their definition is from man's wisdom. It's earthly, natural, and demonic. Here we have God's definition. So here's the scene. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down from the mountain. There's a crowd. The scribes are arguing with the remaining disciples. And it's about the fact that they could not cast a demon out of the boy, something that they had been given authority to do, that God had said they can and should and would do. And then we have this man, Lord, have mercy on my son. And he says, I brought him, verse 16, Matthew 17, to your disciples, and they could not cure him. They should have been able to cure him. They were given authority back in Matthew 10. We saw that. We saw that. Now, on a side note, don't walk out of here and think that you and I have authority to go cast out demons. Don't think that. In Scripture, we see that the Lord and his disciples in the early church casting out demons. It was an evidence to the miraculous reality of the word of God concerning Christ. And within that, we see nowhere in Scripture do we cast out demons at all or we're given authority, except in the end of the book of Mark, which is, if you look at your notes, every Bible that's honest will say these are not in most manuscripts. The Bible is very honest about what portions they believe are absolutely accurate and what are not. So then, back to our passage. The disciple has, had failed in what God had called them to do. He had, they had, he had called them to do it, and they believed, I believe, that they could do it. They attempted to try to do what God had called them to do. And there are times where we know what God has called them to do. We believe we should be doing it, and we step out and we attempt to do it. And yet we fail. We fail. And here we see right away the reality of the consequence of that initially is Jesus being discredited as the scribes are arguing with the with the disciples. So what happens at this point? Notice after being petitioned, petitioned by a desperate dad, Jesus rebukes the crowd, he rebukes the dad, and then he casts out a demon. Verse 16, And I brought him to your disciples. This is, this is uh, uh, Matthew 17. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. At once. Jesus here is not rebuking the disciples, as some pastors have said, as they've studied this passage. I believe they're wrong. He's not rebuking the disciples because in a moment he's going to say they had little faith. Here he rebukes those who are unbelieving. That's not someone with little faith. That's someone who has no faith. He says there, oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. He's rebuking the crowd. And he's rebuking the scribes. They are unbelieving and perverted. They've seen his mighty deeds. They've seen who he is, and they have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are twisted in their thinking. They are perverted in their thinking. They have rejected Christ, desiring the miracles rather than the miracle of salvation through repentance and faith. And if you have not trusted in Christ from God's perspective, you are unbelieving and you are twisted. Your thinking and your actions are wrong because you didn't believe in Christ. And here, the Lord Jesus makes it clear, a principle that he won't put up with you for very long. (coughs) He says, how long shall I put up with you? 
How long shall I put up with you? That's quite a statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say it this way. How much more time do I have to put up with you? How much more time do I have to put up with your unbelief and your perversion? You don't want the Lord Jesus saying this about you. But if you have rejected him, you are an awful grief to him, and he will not put up with you forever. He will judge you for your sin. Some of you have seen the mighty deeds of God as he has delivered people from their sins. He has changed their lives in your midst. They've, they've, they've become new creations in Christ. You've seen the reality and heard the truth of God, and yet you haven't believed. How long will the Lord Jesus put up with you? There will come a day when you are judged. But Jesus is patient, not willing that any should perish. But if you reject him, there will be a time in which you will say, How long will I put up with you? So then, there's not much time. Turn to the Lord right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice back in our passage, the, turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to see also that he reproves the, the dad. He reproves the dad. Mark 9, 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling on the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. This is a horrible scene. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to what? Destroy him. Satan wants to kill and destroy. That's the goal. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now here's Jesus' rebuke of him. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible to him who believes. This is a reproof of this dad. If you can. If you can. Now don't take this statement wrongly where he says all things are possible to him who believes. The context is all things that God has ordained according to his will are possible. All things that he calls in his word that should be done. All the things that he calls us to do. And so here we have this person saying, if you can, and Jesus reproving him. Now, I think what's really interesting here is uh, within this reproof, we see a response from the dad. He actually starts to respond. Look here in verse 24. Immediately the, father's, the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. At the Lord's rebuke, we see this man convicted and we see him responding. I do believe, and he's seeing an honest response. Help my unbelief. An honest response. You see, when the Lord convicts you with his word, you're going to come back in your heart with the truth about where you really stand. Help me in my unbelief. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And some of you are in unbelief. And yet God is tugging on your heart. Call out to him, help me in my unbelief. Help me. Help me. So what's the point here now? Back in Mark chapter 9, still Mark chapter 9, we see here, and when Jesus saw the crowd, verse 25, was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, 
You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out of him and the boy became, became so, so, and the boy became so he was much, he much like a corpse, uh, that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. He was healed. He was healed. In Matthew's gospel, he says in uh, verse 18, and Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out and the boy was cured at once. Cured at once. On a side note, only Jesus can deliver you from Satan. You can sweep the house with religion, but you'll find yourself in a much worse satanic state. Deceived, thinking you're clean when you're not. You see, the reality is everyone apart from Christ is held captive by Satan to do his will. I'm not talking about possession. I'm talking about being in his domain. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, we have the statement, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. And his will is your will. The devil's will is just for you to do what you want to do. Not to do his will, the Lord's will. In Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul recounts his salvation on the road to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus uh, declared to him that he would be delivering him from the Jewish people, or to the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles, from whom I'm sending you, he's speaking to Saul of Tarsus, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. You see, the Lord God opens your eyes with the truth of the gospel, that you're a sinner and you're bound and, and you're, the wages of sin is death. And when you turn to God for salvation, you are delivered from the domain of darkness. You're delivered. Colossians chapter 1, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So back in our passage, we have a physical instance of demon possession, and Jesus has delivered this poor boy from the demon that has tormented him from his youth and tried to kill him. Here we see Jesus vindicated as he casts out the demon. So how can we who want to obey him, um, how can we keep from failing in what he calls us to do? First of all, we need to remember that there are consequences when we do fail. That when we fail in what God has actually called us to and says he will do through us, when we fail, there are consequences. But the most important part we'll see is that we need to realize that faith without prayer is deficient faith. Is deficient faith. Back in Matthew chapter 17, and let's read up to this point here. Verse 14, and when they came to the multitude, a man came to him falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often, often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. And then look at verse 19. 
Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? How come what you called us to do didn't work? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. The term littleness comes from the Greek word oligopistian. It speaks of deficiency or lack of faith in a sense. Limited. Limited or deficient. You had faith, but it was limited. It was deficient because of the littleness of your faith. Now, the New King James uh, says just because of your unbelief, and that's a bad translation. The New King James, as you'll know, is a later translation. It, is, it, is, goes, through, it goes through 900 years of the monks and all that stuff. It gets to the point where you have so many copies. So I prefer the earlier translations. The earlier translations. That's the littleness of their faith. Their faith was deficient. And have we seen this before? Yes, we have. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord makes it clear. You cannot serve two masters, God and man. And then he encourages true believers to not be anxious about their life, what they would eat, wear, and drink, and, 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 and how their, their, their shelter. Comparing the Heavenly Father's care for the birds and his clothing of the flowers and how much more worth we are. And then he says in the end of that, O men of little faith. Of middle faith. Deficient faith, it's lacking. When we don't trust the Lord for those things, it's deficient faith. We believe in Him, but it's deficient. Chapter 8, remember the storm that came upon the disciples and Jesus was in the boat sleeping and they thought they were perishing and they awoke Jesus and said to them, Why are you timid? You men of little faith. And then we have also, in chapter 14, a terrible storm. And Jesus came walking to them on the water and Peter got out of the boat and walked towards Jesus, but yet started to doubt and sink. And immediately, the scripture says, Jesus stretched out his hand and took him hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter stepped out of the boat. He was believing the truth, but his faith was deficient. 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 And in chapter 16, we see Jesus reproved his disciples when they were wondering about food, and he said, have you already forgotten the, the, the loaves and the fishes? He says, but Jesus, where this said, you men of little faith, little faith, Matthew 16, verses 8 and 9. So then throughout Matthew, when Jesus speaks of little faith, he's not speaking of small amounts or large amounts, but deficient faith, faith that is lacking something, faith that is lacking. There is faith, but it's lacking. It's deficient. He's saying their total failure was because of their little faith. Their total failure was because of their little faith. And that's not a compliment. He's not saying, I'm proud of you because you had a little bit of faith. He said why they could not do what he had adorned them and empowered them and ordained that they would do, why they couldn't do it was because of their little faith. But notice, even in their failure with with them and with us, God is gracious to instruct, to instruct. We're going to see that their little faith was evidenced by a lack of prayer, which reveals dependence on the Lord. And we're going to see that our problem often is we believe the truth, but we don't show dependence on God as evidenced by our lack of prayer. We don't trust the Lord in that. We don't depend on him. Back in Matthew 17, verse 
20. And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move here from there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. That's in italics. We'll talk about that in a minute. Whenever you see something in italics, especially a whole verse, it's probably because it has been added later in later manuscripts. And they'll put a note there. Your Bibles are accurate. They'll put a note saying this is not in most manuscripts. The later scribes, what they did was they saw it in another passage and they might have accidentally copied it to this passage or whatever it might be. But your manuscripts are accurate. Your Bibles are accurate. And they'll give you a note about that. But notice what Mark says, which doesn't have that note, which is in the Scripture. Look at Mark 28. Mark 9, 28. <clears throat> and when you come into the house, and when he had come into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately why they could not cast it out. And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer there we have two elements of why it didn't happen matthew is focusing on their little faith mark is revealing that they didn't pray the lord in his sovereignty has allowed certain demons to not come out for certain reasons and i believe we see it here in our lesson he's teaching his disciples that we need to be praying that we need to be depending on him and that that's often why we fail that's often why we fail in what god has called us to do because we are not praying and depending on him. Clearly the word of God says prayer here, so I wouldn't talk about the praying fasting, that part that was added in there. It's prayer. It's prayer. Their littleness of faith um, in Matthew earlier was caused by them being overwhelmed by circumstances, situations, but here their littleness of faith was because they did not pray. Why couldn't we cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot come out except by prayer. Prayer. Their little faith, a manifestation of that was they didn't pray. You see, sometimes we can do things systematically that God has called us to do. No longer trusting him, no longer praying. He's given us uh, the realities of the truth that we have, and we just start doing it, not praying, not depending and it's apparent that that's basically what happened. They were just going through the motions and God didn't let it work. Praise the Lord for that. This kind doesn't come out except for prayer. And folks, prayer reveals an absolute dependence on the Lord. Real prayer, a real relationship with God. Not phony baloney uh, rote prayers, but a real relationship with the Lord. Lord God, I can't preach today. I cannot do this. I trust you to do it through me. I trust you to faithfully do it. I can't teach. I can't say the right thing in this conversation, Lord God, but I trust you to give me the words. Or I trust you to close my mouth. There's prayer involved. There's prayer involved. It's a real relationship with the Lord. So then, they tried to minister without fully trusting the Lord. They believed it, or they wouldn't have tried to do it, right? They believed what God said, you have the authority to do this, and they stepped out, but they didn't pray. We did the same thing. We believe that we are to love our wives or submit to our husband, whatever it might be. We believe the truth and we step out desiring to do it, but we don't pray. And we fail. And we fail. Let me ask you this. Do you pray? Is it an integral reality in your, in, in, intertwined in your faith with Jesus? You're believing in his truth? So many people believe what's said here, but they don't believe in the God who said it. And depend upon him. 
They failed because they didn't pray. They had little faith. Mothers and fathers, do you know God's will for you in raising your kids? Do you believe it? Yes. But if you don't depend upon the Lord in the context of doing it, you'll fail. When you go to work, you know it's your, it's, you know in your job that we're to do our work hardly unto the Lord and not unto men. Do you trust Him to help you? Do you pray? Do you pray? Whatever it might be. And we need to confess, folks. I failed. We need to confess where we have just stepped out wanting to follow the Lord with the right motives, wanting to obey Him and not prayed. And not prayed. Now, Jesus further explains here. He says, back in our passage in Matthew chapter 17. He says, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible for you. So the disciples pull him aside privately, why they couldn't cast him out. He says, the littleness of your faith, you didn't pray, book of Mark. And then he says, and begins an explanation for Truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move here, from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible. And you're saying, wow, that explanation doesn't help me very much. It's kind of complex and kind of makes it a little more confusing to me. What does he mean by that? Jesus has just reproved them for the littleness of their faith. or the, And then he says, if you had faith as the smallest seed, even smaller than that. Well, that doesn't make sense, right? Seems contradictory. And actually, a mustard seed is smaller than a grain of sand. So if their faith was that small, they would be able to move mountains and nothing be impossible. Seems like a contradiction. You have small faith and you couldn't do it. Yet if you had incredibly small faith, you can do it. Doesn't seem to make sense, right? Well, I think the contradiction disappears when we understand the way the Lord Jesus uses this term mustard seed and the illustrations that he's used with his disciples before. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Remember, it starts out the smallest, but if it persists, endures, it becomes the largest. If tiny faith is genuine, it doesn't stay tiny, it's persistent. Help me in my unbelief, right? It doesn't say stay small. It grows, it expands. Never, never quit believing what Jesus has said. Persist in prayer. Persist in prayer. Let me give you another illustration. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Persist. You believe it, but it's deficient if you're not praying. Look at this uh, example about how we ought to pray in Luke chapter 18. This is for us believers. If you're not a believer, you're just going, oh well. Luke chapter 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Isn't that great? At all times ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, there was a certain, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. 
And while he was unwilling, but, but afterwards he said to himself, for, excuse me, and for a while he was unwilling. But afterwards he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect men, yet because of this, this little bothers me, I will give her legal protection, protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, who will not del- and he will not delay over them, long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Pray and don't grow weary. Keep trusting the Lord. Let your faith grow. Pray. I want to point out one other important observation here. Turn to uh, Mark chapter 11. Mark actually ties prayer together with what we're seeing in Matthew again. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what... He, he says, is going to happen, it shall be granted. Therefore, I say to you, all things to which you, what? Pray, ask, and believe that you have received them. Believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. And that's in the context of God's will. But prayer is involved in the context of faith. Do you see prayer and faith hand in hand? Hand in hand? You may believe the truth of God, but are you trusting the God of the truth? as revealed by prayer. Are you trusting him? Are you trusting the Lord? Now, hopefully you're saying at this point, I get it, I get it now. But what about this moving a mountain stuff? What about that? We'll finish up with that. He says here back in Matthew 17, For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible for you. That's a pretty strong promise. Now, folks, this cannot possibly be speaking of moving literal mountains. Jesus never did so himself, and neither did his disciples. And Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. What is he speaking of? Well, historically speaking, there was a Jewish figure of speech, an idiom, an expression. When someone was a mover of mountains, they were those who overcame great difficulties. At that time, someone was called a mover of mountains, one who overcame great difficulties. And I believe what he is saying is using this common figure of speech to say, if you have tiny faith, the faith that's so small yet persists in me, you pray and trust, you will overcome the obstacles. Nothing shall be impossible for you in the context of what he's called us to do. He's called you to love your wife. He's called you to submit your husband, love your husband, respect. He's called you to do your work hardly. Nothing is impossible if you pray and trust him, and trust him. He's not saying that by faith you can do anything you want. It's that which is in the context of his declared will. When we persist according to his will, he's going to grant our request. I need your help to do this, Lord Jesus Christ. I can't do it. I cannot preach and teach. You must help me. Please help me. I need your help. I need your help with my children and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Help me. I can't do it. I need your help at work to do my work hardly unto you and not unto men. Help me. 
And then I believe he's going to help me because he's faithful. I believe what he said. He says, if you believe it, you have it in a sense. You believe that God will enable you to do what he calls you to do. You trust him. You rely on him. There's no sin in the way. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So many passages God declares to us and we believe them, but yet practically speaking, we don't trust the Lord in those circumstances. The Lord wants us to learn why we fail and what he calls us to do. That we would have persistent faith, that we would have faith that is bound together in prayer depending upon the Lord. That's what he desires for us. And then within the context of his will and his time, nothing is impossible in that sense. So then how can we keep from failing in what God calls us to do? We need to be prayerfully dependent upon Christ persisting or it gives the world an opportunity to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we all recognize we all fail here. And I thank you that in your disciples' failure, you taught them and you taught us. And Lord, I just pray that we would think about circumstances in our lives where we have gone through the motions of believing maybe your truth or whatever it might be, but we have not depended on you as evidenced by prayer. Forgive us. Help us, Lord God, in every circumstance, in every way to believe your truth and then to trust in your Son, to, to depend upon you that we would be able to then accomplish your will by your power and strength for your glory. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Help us not to forget what we've learned today. Praise in his precious name. Amen.